This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles this evening to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, we're looking this evening at verses 14 through 26. James 2, beginning of verse 14. Hear the word of the Lord. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see, the person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab, a prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Whereas the body, apart from the spirit, is dead, so also faith, apart from works, is dead. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for this passage and ask that as we study it this evening, that you would give energy to our minds and warmth to our hearts to love your word and to love you, the one who gave us this word. Help us, Father, guide us by your spirit, especially in this passage, to understand it aright. Pray that you would encourage us and challenge us in it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The 16th century church reformer Martin Luther is known for his ambivalence toward the book of James. The expression, an epistle of straw, is associated with Luther. Uh, that phrase appears in the preface to the New Testament in his 1522 edition of the New Testament. And uh, that, that phrase is often cited in connection with Luther, although to be fair, apparently later editions of that preface do not contain 
that statement. Uh, edition's edited by Luther's own hand, so it seems that later Luther uh, removed that expression, but it seems that like doubt and Thomas, an epistle of straw, that expression is, is forever to be associated with, with Luther. Nevertheless, Luther did have real problems with the book of James, uh, and part of it had to do with this passage, the difficulty that we find in this passage of reconciling James with Paul. In fact, Luther said, I'll give my doctor's beret to anybody who can reconcile James and Paul. It seems that uh, maybe Luther earned back his doctor's doctorate beret because he um, he himself worked on reconciling the two. Uh, and in much the same line that I would follow tonight, although we want to be careful that we don't just impose Paul's mind on James. That we're not just trying to run roughshod over what James is really saying here. And, of course, uh, those in the Roman Catholic Church uh, make much in the face of Luther and the Reformation over verse 24. You see a person's justified by works and not by faith alone. What are we to make of that? We who say we're saved by grace through faith, justification by faith. What are we to make of a statement as bald and plain as that? A person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Well, as we come to this passage, of course, context is, is always critical. Uh, the context of what has gone before, what comes afterward. You don't want to take a verse like 24 and consider it apart from the rather lengthy context of verses 14 through 26. But even at that, that seems to be the, the summary of James' whole argument. That we're justified by works and not by faith alone. You look at it in the context, that seems to be what he's saying. Well, I, I tremble uh, in coming to this passage and certainly uh, take any, any exception to Martin Luther's concerns. And by the way, his concerns had to do with the context of the book of James and the content of the book of James, but also had to do with its history. Uh, Luther was, was a brilliant man. He, he looked at the book of James not only for what was in it, but also its history and others in the history of the church and church fathers who had concerns about its place in the canon. Uh, nevertheless, uh, I think we would agree that James is part of the New Testament, that it has a rightful place in the Bible, and therefore we have to come to terms with this passage and ask, what is it saying? Is James in conflict with Paul? Well, our innate sense of orthodoxy would say, no, why not? Well, even if we can't really say why not, uh, we would still have to say somehow the two fit together. And I think they do. And I think that the key to understanding Paul and understanding James is not so much trying to mesh them together as to recognize that the, the difficulty, I think, is resolved to a large degree by understanding not the content of the doctrine, but the target of the application. What is the need that Paul is addressing? What is the need that James is addressing? It seems to me that they are addressing two different pastoral situations. Paul, of course, coming out of his own background as a Pharisee and no doubt wrestling through a lot of these things himself, is concerned against uh, to answer the arguments of the Judaizers and others who were insisting on things like circumcision, who were insisting on obedience, on 
works. And Paul comes back in his pastoral emphasis addressing that problem and saying, no, we're not saved by Christ plus anything. We're saved by grace through faith alone. We're not justified by works of the law. Paul was answering those who were adding to Christ. James very clearly is applying the same gospel to those who are taking away from Christ and from the reality of the gospel. Or we could say he's answering those who are perverting the gospel into presumption, from grace to presumption. And Paul hints at this, of course, in in Romans chapter 6. Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? May it never be? Absolutely not. God forbid. So even Paul hints that, uh, that, that obedience is part of saving faith there in the, in the beginning of, of Romans chapter 6. But what is James getting at here? What is he saying? Well, I think he is addressing those who want to have a claim to faith and yet don't show anything in their lives that backs it up. Now, we have these same situations today. There are Christians and there are churches that are very legalistic, that whether explicitly or implicitly add to Christ in the gospel. And they need to be answered with Paul's arguments, with Paul's application of the the gospel to the legalist, which saved by grace through faith alone. But there certainly are many Christians today who I think fall under this the crosshairs of James chapter 2. Those who claim faith in Christ, and there's nothing to go along with it. There's no repentance. There's no longing for obedience and holiness. There's no service to others out of love for Christ and love for those for whom he died and those who are in need of Christ's death on their behalf. And so both emphases are applicable today. Paul to the legalist, and I think James to the antinomian, the one who lives as if there is no law. So let's look at what James is saying here. I think James is not in conflict with Paul at all. I think he simply reflects a different application of the same gospel they both believed and they both preached. And so as we look at this passage uh, and the way it's divided in the ESV, I think it's a very reasonable way to look at it. Uh, A break, beginning at verse 14, a break then between 17 and 18. So let's look at what he's saying here. Basically, he says a couple of things. First of all, he's saying faith without works is dead. It's dead faith. This is 14 through 17. He begins with a question. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So he raises the question here. We think James raises this, not because he's just out looking for abstract questions to ponder, but because he has encountered this among believers. What good is it if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? What good is it? Another way to put that would be, how do you know? How do you know he has faith? If he says he does, but what good is it if he doesn't have any works Now, by works, we can understand all kinds of things. And in the context, he seems to indicate what we would think of as good works, as providing for, serving, doing for someone else, which would fall under a larger category of works as as obedience, obedience to God's word, obedience 
to, to God's commands. But particularly, he seems to have in mind a person who claims to have faith and yet seems to show no concern for other people, for other Christians, but for other people generally. And he asks the question, can that faith save him? Is that adequate to, to save him? This kind of faith that doesn't seem to produce any fruit in form of good works in someone's life. Now, he gives an illustration. What's he talking about? Well, he puts this in concrete terms. Verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you, one of you in the church, encounters this person and says to him, oh, go in peace, be warmed, be filled, without doing anything, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? I have to examine myself and say, yeah, am I guilty of that? You know, are you guilty of that? Are we as a church sometimes guilty of that? Um, now, we do encounter people who come to the church for help. Uh, I'm not sure that's exactly what James is envisioning. I think he's talking about a brother or sister. I think he's talking about someone within the community. Uh, we do have people who come by, refer them usually to the co-op. The co-op, we're involved with them and work through them. Um, but we also are to be discerning. Uh, I know I and our deacons would rather err on the side of generosity than the side of stinginess, uh, but it's also a fact that there are hunter-gatherers out there who make the rounds of churches and ministries, and um, you know it's a, it's a much deeper systemic problem that needs to be addressed. Uh, while meeting the day's need may be helpful, there are deeper issues. But I think he has primarily in mind the community of believers, a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in food. Then all we just give them is good words. What good is it, he asks? Well, then he gives this principle, verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. If you just say, go in peace, be warm and be fed, those are just dead words. They don't help. They don't have any life to them. There's no reality there. He says in the same way that those words don't do any good, Faith, by itself, if it does not issue forth in works, is dead. If that expression of goodwill towards someone does not issue forth in providing for their needs, he says in the same way, this faith you say you have, if it does not have works that accompany it, that flow out of it, that are produced by it, that faith is dead. In other words, it's really no faith at all. And by that, he answers the question of verse 14. Can that faith save him? He says, no, that faith is dead. It cannot save him. Now, that seems to be the, 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 the difficulty that has prompted this question in his mind. Seeing believers who may express good intentions toward other people and yet don't take the action necessary to bring those good intentions into practical need meeting fruition. And so he starts out just with the, the observation that faith without works is dead faith. It's nothing. It doesn't do any good. It doesn't accomplish anything. And therefore, by implication, it cannot save. If it cannot result in meeting the needs of another person, then it's not going to result in your eternal salvation. It really is no faith at all. And we need to, to stop and, again, examine ourselves, examine our church. Are we allowing uh, our faith, or we, do we have faith that issues forth in practical help toward others, and perhaps even at times sacrificial? 
So faith without works is dead is where he starts, but then he goes on to elaborate, and, and while it's a similar thought, it is a little different. Faith without works is dead, but then in the second part, verses 18 through 26, it's works that make faith visible. Faith by itself is, is a very abstract thing. How do you see it? How do you measure it? How do you know it's there? Well, it's kind of like air. You, you see it by its effects. You see it when it moves trees. You see it when it blows houses down, whatever the case might be. Uh, but you see it primarily in its effects. Then you see it in itself. Well, faith is, is similar to that. We see it in its effects. Works make faith visible. Uh, now, he begins this second section with an objection that sets the idea that works makes faith visible. Someone will say, you have faith. And I have works. James says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Show me your faith apart from your works. Let's see it. I mean, it's not something you pull out of your pocket show somebody or you keep in a safe deposit box at the bank. Show me your faith apart from your works. What do you have to show? Nothing. You can't. There's no way to show faith in and of itself. Again, it's an abstraction. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. The works grow out of the faith. They're an expression of the faith. That's its objection. Show me your faith apart from your works. Let's see it. Can't do it. I'll show you my faith by my works. Now, he goes on to answer that objection in some different ways here. Uh, one of them we've already mentioned, the second part of verse 18, I will show you my faith by my works. That's the only way I can show you my faith. I say I trust in Christ. I, I follow him. How do you know? Well, it issues forth in works. On the one hand, uh, obedience and holiness of life. Not sinlessness, but uh, repentance and obedience. And on the other hand, uh, works of mercy good deeds uh, to, to assist and meet the needs of others. So faith is seen in its works. Another uh, answer to that objection that he raises in, in the first part there, verse 18, is that mere doctrinal assent, in other words, just a mere abstract faith, really makes you no better than Satan. Look at verse 19. You believe that God is one. That's, a, that's an element of faith. Belief is to, is to have faith. You believe that God is one. You do well. That's a good thing. Great. Very good. A on that part of the doctrinal exam. Uh, you do well. But even the demons believe and they shudder. And this point seems to be, yeah, the, the demons believe that. Satan himself knows that. He, he has a doctrine of God. He understands who God is. That, that's all fine and good. Uh, his point seems to be, that's great, but you're doing no better than Satan so far, which is an abysmally low standard. Uh, all of you who have been through the Explorers class, which is most of you, um, at one time or another, uh, know that we talk about the chair illustration from Evangelism Explosion, and it probably didn't originate with E.E., uh, but talking about the elements of saving faith being a knowledge and assent or agreement and trust. 
And knowledge, of course, is knowing the facts about, in this case, about a chair. Uh, you know, they come in different shapes and sizes. They do this and that. They're supposed to hold you up. And, you know, and, and assent is agreeing with that, you know, with what we know about the chair. We believe, you know, we agree it can, it can hold me up and, and so on. Uh, but you, you have no relationship with that chair until you finally sit in it and trust it to hold you up. Well, what James is talking about here is that second level of assent. Knowing who Jesus is, knowing some facts about him and about the gospel, agreeing that those are true, which that in itself is a good thing. As we point out in the Explorers class, there are people with PhDs teaching in uh, liberal theological seminaries who know the facts that the Bible teaches about Jesus. They don't believe they're true. They don't believe he rose from the dead. They don't believe he was born of a virgin. They don't believe he did the miracles the Bible says that he did and so on. So assent or agreement is a good thing. That's so why he says, you're good for you. You do well. Um, but Satan makes it that far. The demons get that far. They know the facts. They believe that those facts about God are true. And it's tragic that there are many professing believers who are really only at this point. You know, they know what the Bible teaches. They believe that that's true. And, you know, as a session, it's our responsibility to examine people for membership in the church. And that is a weighty responsibility. And it's a difficult responsibility. Because we don't see the heart. You know, and the fear is among adults who come among our children who come is that they know the answers and they agree with those answers. But are they regenerate? Do they love Christ? Are they committed to him? Or are they and Satan in the same camp who know the facts and agree that they're true, but their faith is dead? Pray that it would not be so with the members of our church. He uses an example in verses 20 through 24. Uh, he says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, faith apart from works is useless? And he uses the example here, of course, of Abraham. It was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the, the altar. Now this is, this is it's interesting because it's the very same example Paul uses to argue for salvation by grace through faith alone. He points to Abraham. James is not preaching a different gospel. James is making a different application of the same gospel. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, but his was a faith that was evident in his works. And that's the case that James is making here. Was he not justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? It was a work of obedience. As we saw, as you know, in reading of Abraham, as we saw when we studied Abraham not too long ago, uh, a staggering act of obedience and faith believing, as Hebrews says, that God could raise him from the dead to fulfill the promises he had made through Isaac. And James makes the application in verse 22. You see that faith was active along with his works. Faith is active. And the flip side of that, faith was completed by his works. Faith is there. It's real. It's living. And so it acts. And the works complete the faith. The works are the way that Abraham shows his faith. 
A real faith, not a dead faith, but a living faith. Faith was active. Faith was completed by his works. Verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled. It says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The very verse that Paul uses to demonstrate justification by faith, James uses to demonstrate justification by works. But it wasn't works alone. It wasn't an empty work. It was an act of obedience that arose out of a living faith in the Lord. Just like Paul is arguing uh, for living faith in Christ. If you sat Paul and James down and they were to talk about this, they'd be in perfect agreement. Because they're not talking about two different Gospels. They're talking about different applications of the same Gospel. Some people need to hear, no, it is not trusting in Jesus plus this and plus that, plus anything. It's faith in Christ alone. Other people need to hear, look, you say you believe in Jesus, but there's nothing in your life to indicate that that faith is real at all. You have no interest in Christ. You're disobedient to Christ. It doesn't seem to bother you. You're in church a few times a year and that's it. No hunger for the Word, no hunger for Christian fellowship. Your faith, my dear friend, shows every evidence of being dead. Not two different Gospels, not a conflict, but different applications of the same Gospel. That's why Paul can use Abraham as an example of justification by grace through faith. And James can use Abraham as an example that faith without works is dead, but faith that shows itself in works is living and it's real and it's alive. And that's why he summarizes. He was called a friend of God. Verse 24, you see a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. You have to understand that statement in the context. To take that out is to make it a blanket statement as if somehow it contradicts Paul as a blatant misuse of Scripture and a violation of principles of understanding Scripture. James would not say that. So we're saved by our works alone. No, we're saved by works that grow out of genuine, God-given, saving faith. Those works do justify in the sense that they reflect the reality of saving faith. And I don't think I'm imposing Paul on James to say that. I think James himself would agree with that. You can't have works without faith. There are people that do that. They're just do-gooders. They're moralists. But there's no real repentant saving faith in Christ. They're not saved by their works. Their works are dead works. They're empty works. They're not justified. But James is giving the necessary emphasis to the gospel in the case of those who think they can claim faith and yet have nothing in their lives that shows it's there. He makes one other brief example, that of Rahab. Verses 25 and 26, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works. How would you like that to be your, <laughs> you know, doubting Thomas? That's bad enough. Then you get you're forever known as Rahab the prostitute. Maybe we should call her Rahab the repentant prostitute or former prostitute. I don't know. That's, that's worse than doubting Thomas. Rahab the prostitute, what James calls her though. Rahab the prostitute, and we know who he's talking about uh, in the book of uh, Joshua. Justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Yes. But why did she do what she did? Remember what she told them. You know, we've heard what you've done. We've heard what God is doing in you and what's going to happen. Why did she do what she did? Because she believed what she'd heard. 
There was faith in her heart that the Lord was God, that Israel was his people, and that they were doomed. And so she acted, not in isolation from faith, but as an expression of her faith. But the point is, it resulted in action, in a good work. Was she not justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? And then a summary, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. What good works have you done this past week, this past month, this within this year that were prompted out of love for Christ and compassion or love for another person? Maybe your husband or your wife, maybe someone else in this church, maybe a neighbor, a classmate, co-worker. What good work has resulted in your life, say, in the last two months, out of your faith in Christ and your love for those for whom he died or those who need him to die for them? Can you think of anything? Let me ask you this. What sins have you really repented of in the last two months simply because you love Jesus? What sin are you mortifying? Are you putting to death because Christ died for you? Can you think of anything? Dear friends, we're justified by those works that arise out of faith. And we are justified by faith that gives rise to good works. If you don't see any evidence of that faith in your life that's tangible, that you could point to, not that you want to boast about it, not that you want to go around pointing out your own good works, of course, but if someone were to say to you, show me your faith. Could you say, well, you know, just last week I was very convicted about something in my life, about something I say or something I do or the way I treat someone or I don't treat someone And I sincerely went before the Lord and asked his forgiveness, and I asked forgiveness of that person. And by God's grace, I am going to do better in that area. That's doing what James says. That's pointing at something. Or, you know, I realized that there was a a, a brother, a believer at work, who's an encouragement to me, who is at need, who is in need. He's had some some pretty big expenses come up and anonymously. sent some money his way just to help out. Nobody else knows about it. Just because I care about him and want to try to help meet those needs and encourage him. What is it that you can point to? Either repenting of sin, dealing with sin, working on a relationship with somebody, good works you've done out of love for Christ and out of love for people he died for or people who need Jesus to die for them. You could say, there is my faith. There is my faith. Show me your faith without works. Can't do it. I trust we'd all be able to say, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. Let's pray. Father, in some ways a tricky passage. Uh, Lord, even stymieing someone with the, uh, the intellect of a Martin Luther. But Father, we pray that its message would be plain enough. Pray, Father, that we would all have faith that has been given by you. Living faith. Saving faith. Faith that issues forth in those works that justify. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.